He's a good, good father. So he's, he's good all the time, right? All the time. Even when things are going rough, even when you had a bad week, he's still good. And he's still in control and still loves us immensely. So this, this last week, there's been loss within the church family of, of individuals who've passed away. I, I don't think I can recall a week like this in the short history, the existence of New Hope, in which um, six individuals passed away. And um, I just want to go through that with you because um, we, we have a responsibility as a body of Christ to lift each other up and, and to support them and to uh, pray for God's peace to be on, on their heart, right? So there's family members here among us today who lost family members over the course of the last week or week and a half or so. And um, Steve Scofus lost his mom. And uh, Steve Whalen lost his dad in the past week, and, and there's already been funerals for these individuals. Um, Mark Jovian, who was supposed to play guitar this morning and uh, was scheduled to be up here with Derek and the rest of the team, he had to fly out to Vermont on Thursday because his mom passed away. And Ruth Rutherford, she lost her daddy this last week. And Larry Bennett, who attends the Saturday night service, he passed away in the last week from cancer. So, you know, there's just a lot of hurt, right? But God's still good. God's still good all the time, even when things are hard. So here's what I'd love to do. We're going to step into Romans chapter 4 in just a minute, but before we do that, I'd really like to pray with you, and we'll pray for these individuals and also for God leading us through this passage. Can you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we know that when our hearts are heavy, um, you're near especially to us. We're told that you're near to the brokenhearted. And we ask that you would be a, a source of incredible comfort to, greater than we could ever possibly be to these individuals who have lost family members. And the, the hole uh, can't be filled quickly, Father. But you can give a peace that passes understanding. It's unexplainable. For those of us who are in relationship with you, we know that your Holy Spirit um, brings um, ointment to our wounds. And so we ask because you're the God of hope, that you would do that for these individuals, that you would be especially close and near to them. Father, for those of us who have gathered together this morning, both uh, watching online and those who are in the auditorium here, we ask that you would give us insight as we open up your word now, that you would guide us and speak to us with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would understand you better and that we would understand who we are to you and that you would help us to understand that. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and turn them to Romans chapter 4. If you don't have one with you, you'll see them in the racks around you, and you can pick one up and follow that way. If you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back of the auditorium, so don't not own a Bible because you can't afford one. There's free ones back there. You can take one with you when you leave today. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to pick up around verse 9. There's a really brutal expression that you find in the New Testament that I've always struggled with, even when I was a teenager, because it just it hit me so hard that God, in, in 2 Corinthians we're told, God made him sin for us. So we're talking about God the Father and God the Son here. And in 2 Corinthians it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You see that verse up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Here's the reason why. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that concept of God making God sin causes some people to stumble. 
And, and we allowed some time in the Saturday night service last night for Q&A like we typically do, but I thought that'd be interesting to do that in each of the services, so we did that in the 9.15, and we'll do that here in the 11 o'clock, because I'm going to teach short this morning, and I'll give you some time to allow the questions that pop in your mind right now or as we work through the passage to maybe just say, hey, here's my observation about that, and see if we can engage in some inquiry over it. So just rest with this thought. God, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why did God do that? He did that because sin must be dealt with. God doesn't wink at sin, does he, church? God doesn't do that. God doesn't wink at sin or just excuse it. It has to be atoned for. So consider this. How horrible must sin be that it required God the Son to leave heaven to come here to deal with it? Because we can't. How horrible must sin be that God had to deal with it personally? Last week when we were in, in verse 8 and verse 7 verse 6, we examined, I think really forcefully, this amazing blessing that we have of having sin removed. If we believe, we're told that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west and that God remembers them no more. That's a great truth, isn't it? That's a wonderful truth. God removes it completely from us. So we found in verse 8 that Paul was quoting King David. Uh, I want to put that on the screen for you just to remind you of what we looked at. This is what Paul wrote that King David said in the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms, he said, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, if you're new to church or maybe you're new to the Bible, you might be looking at that and thinking, Whoa, who gets that? Like, I would love that. How do I get that? Who qualifies for that? Well, this week, as we look at verse 9, 10, and 11, and 12, you're going to see exactly who and how that happens. How does God remove that sin? So go with me into verse 9 of chapter 4, and let's look at it together. Is this blessing then, Paul's talking about the same blessing of having the sin removed, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? He's a complicated way of saying it, but he's saying the same thing you might be thinking. Who gets that? Who is that blessing on? Go with me to the rest of verse 9. It says this, For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Here's what Paul has just done. He's gone from quoting King David in the book of Psalms to quoting an incident with Abraham in the book of Genesis. Let me put the exact quote for you up on the screen so you can see the context of what Paul's talking about. Genesis 15, 6, he, meaning Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, meaning God, that's why it's capital H, credited it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Why bring Abraham into this? Well, because he's considered the father of the faith. Jews claim him as the father of their faith. Muslims claim him as the father of their faith. Christians claim him as the father of the faith. Scripture says he's the father of the faith. So Paul's asking two really poignant questions here. And he's focusing on Abraham. If Abraham was declared righteous, and he was according to what we've just read here, under what circumstances? How does he get to be claimed righteous? And in regards to the timing, here's Paul's second question. Was it after he was circumcised, meaning works, or before? Did he have to work for it? Or was it given to him? See, it seems kind of complicated to ask it that way, but here's what he's just done. He's bringing us face to face with an incredible struggle that our world wrestles with deeply every single day. 
the concept of earning salvation. And if you don't struggle with it personally, I bet you know somebody in your social world that does. Somebody in your work environment, maybe somebody in your school, maybe somebody in your family. They think they can be good with God by just doing the right things, by earning it. And here's what it sounds like in the midst of conversation. Maybe if you ask someone, maybe you're out for coffee, or you're just going for a walk in your neighborhood, or maybe in the midst of your workplace, you'd say to someone, how do you get to heaven? Here's typically the response you'll hear from many people. Well, I've been a good girl, right? Or I've been a good boy. Or here's one that I hear commonly. I think it'll all just work out in the end. How'd you like to put your hope in that one, right? I think it'll just, I'll just work out. Now, that's not something to put your confidence in, that it'll just maybe all work out in the end. Why do individuals have those kind of responses? Because they're not sure what the answer is. Well, I've been a good girl. I've been a good boy. I've done such and such. Maybe then God will like me. Now, I'm going to give you three examples of individuals who think that way that take place in our modern world. Maybe you've watched it on the news and you've never really thought of it in these terms before or paid attention to it, but let me give you three. If you travel to Mexico and you find the Shrine of Guadalupe, once a year you will individual, find individuals typically crawling on their hands and knees to the Shrine of Guadalupe, believing that by the time they make it to the Basilica, that God will have paid attention to them if they've been on their knees long enough to the degree that they actually bloody their knees and bloody their palms because they've scraped the concrete and the stones for so long. Their desire is that by the time they get to the shrine, they could buy a candle and put it up there and begin praying for someone who's in purgatory. And maybe, just maybe, because I've been on my knees and because I've bloodied my knees, that maybe then God will listen to me because I've done just enough of the right things to get His attention. That's one thought. Translate yourself over to India. In, in the Hindu religion, there's a similar belief. Individuals believe that they're, if they're at the confluence of the Ganges River and the Yamuna River. If they're at the confluence of those two rivers at the right time and they jump into the water, that as a result of being there at the right time, that they will earn eternal life. Now, the thought is this. In, in the Hindu holy book, they're told that if you're at the conflux of those two rivers, they call them the black and white river, once every 12 years, when Jupiter and the moon and the sun align, then at that point, you may earn eternal life by jumping into the water at the right time. Now, that's two examples. Let's go to a third one. Third one is in the Muslim religion believing that everyone who is a Muslim should at least at once in their life try and make it to Mecca to be part of the Hajj, to encircle the area where Muhammad, their prophet, was born, believing that perhaps they'll be earning God's favor. Because in the Muslim belief, the thought is this, if your good is greater than your bad, when you stand before God on the judgment day, then in that moment, perhaps... If your good outweighs your bad, God will allow you to step into eternity. But if you've caught God on a bad day, well, maybe not. Maybe you're just destined directly to hell. You better had good works that outweigh your bad works. The only way you're guaranteed to get into heaven in the Muslim religion is if you commit jihad. And jihad literally means to exert force for God. So across the globe, we have rituals carried out by billions of people as a regular activity, believing 
that if I just do enough of the right ritual, if I just do enough of the right works, maybe then I will appease God. What drives that kind of action? Well, religion that is works-based, that tells individuals, if you make yourself right with God and perform certain works, you can earn heaven through your effort. Now, just like in 2017, it was true in the first century where Paul lived. In Paul's day, individuals thought the same way, that they could please God by doing certain actions. So Paul lives among a group of people who are thinking that way, and for that reason, he leans back into the book of Genesis and quotes what you just saw on the screen. I'm going to put it up there again. Genesis 15, 6. He believed the Lord, and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. Now, this is very interesting that Paul's using Abraham here. Because in our day, in 2017, three great world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all claim Abraham as the father of their faith. And Paul leans into Abraham in this moment to make his point. He says, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. Credited what? That Abraham believed. Believed what? Believed that God would do what he said he would do. Is that you this morning? Do you believe that God is good to his word? That God will do the things that he said he would do? It's a good place to ask you that. Do you believe God or are you still trying to earn your way into heaven? So Paul poses the question, did Abraham earn righteousness or was it given to him because of his belief in God? Go with me to verse 10. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. See, he's answering his own question here. So Paul's saying, no doubt, the works Abraham did, they were not until long after God called him righteous. Now track with me on this. Students of the Bible, check me on this. In Genesis 12, God shows up and begins a conversation with Abraham. Abraham's 75 years old. God says, Abraham, I'm calling you out. Your seed will be as, as the stars in the sky. You will be a chosen people unto me. Genesis 15, God shows up again, engages Abraham in conversation, and we're told that the covenant promise is made, and we're told that Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness. Genesis 17, Isaac is born, and God says, you shall be circumcised. That's 24 years after the commitment that God had made, and Abraham said he believed God. So Paul's asking the question, was it before or was it after? He says, now while he was circumcised, it was before, meaning not because of works, but long before works, it's because of belief. See, it's not ritual that gives you standing before God. It's not ritual that gave Abraham standing before God. Only one thing did that. The same thing that gives you standing before God. Faith. Believing that God is good to his word. So here's the implication. God's acceptance of Abraham demonstrates a huge application for us of the salvation by faith thought. That God will not treat Abraham one way and treat the entire human race another way that wouldn't be consistent. That wouldn't be a good, good God. 
to treat one person one way and another person another way. That Abraham is justified apart from works opens the door to everyone else. So therefore, Abraham is called the father of all who believe. Go with me to verse 11. You'll see that statement in the midst of verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while circumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe. Who's that, church? It's us, right? Who, you're the ones who believe. He's the father of all who believe without being circumcised, meaning without any works, without any works effort. That why? That righteousness might be credited to them. The them is you. The them is us if we believe. So there's a really subtle emphasis going on here. Paul's just kind of laying as an undercurrent under these verses. This thing called faith, it's not some new revolutionary concept. God has always saved by faith. Faith in his mercy, faith in his capacity to justify, faithful to his word. So Paul's anticipating a question here. If, if Abraham was justified by faith and faith alone, then why did God demand a work? Why did he demand circumcision? That's a legitimate question because it was commanded by God. And as a result, the Jews placed a huge emphasis on it, believing that if a person, a male, wasn't circumcised, then they're out, they're, they're outside the, the love of God. In the Old Testament, you see examples of it. Remember when David walked onto the battlefield? If you remember the, the story, maybe as a child you heard this. King David is a young man. He walks onto the battlefield, and there's this giant of a guy that walks out. His name is Goliath. So David looks at Goliath and he sees him from a distance and what's, what does he yell out? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, right? Because it's a derogatory remark. They're thinking, that guy's outside the love of God. I don't want anything to do with him. Who is this guy? So over time, these people who were chosen to be God's representatives on earth, the Jewish nation, they became convinced that this action of physical circumcision made them acceptable to God, believing that eternal salvation is wrapped up in their physical action to the degree that they believed that no one who was circumcised could actually enter into hell. Let me show you a couple quotes. This first one is from uh, Rabbi Menachem. He lived a long time ago, but this is what he wrote. No circumcised man will ever see hell. That's external. That's not in the Bible. That's external Jewish writing, right? Here's another one for you. I don't know who wrote this one. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. So here comes Paul, right? This Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, trained under the house of Gamaliel, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, he says of himself. Always kept God's commands. He's a Pharisee after all. He's going to do that, right? Here comes Paul on the scene, and he says, wait, time out. You guys totally misunderstand this. This is not what Jesus said. This is not what God intended. These rituals don't save you. See, here's, the, here's the deal. A person trusting in ritual or trusting in works, they invalidate the action of Christ. They're invalidating what Jesus did on the cross by placing themselves under rituals and under works. What they're saying is, what Jesus did is not good enough. Yeah, he died on the cross for my sins, but it wasn't quite enough. I've got to do more. I've got to do more for God to pay attention to me, for God to hear me, for God to listen to me, for God to like me. Church, he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. 
So a person who's doing that invalidates the action of Christ. God's own words stand in contradiction to the thought that you can earn it. Look with me on the screen. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So in verse 11, there's two specific words that just kind of fly off the page. One is sign and one is seal. I'm not going to give you the Greek meaning for it, but I just want to focus on those two words for a minute. Look with me at the the breakdown of the bracket of verse 11. You see it on the screen? The sign of circumcision and the seal of the righteousness of the faith. Really, really important words because they apply to you today. Yeah, they actually do. They apply to the church today. I want you to understand why. These are really important words because we're told it's a sign given by God. Now that matters. That's important. God says it's a sign. Let me show you in Genesis when God chose circumcision as one of the examples of a sign. Look with me on the screen. Genesis 17, 11. He said to Abraham, and you shall be circumcised. Why? It's going to be a sign of what? Of the covenant relationship between you and me. Now in antiquity... Many nations practiced male circumcision, so that can't be what's going on here. It can't be the physical action. What is the deal with the sign here? It's not physical circumcision that's so important, but who commanded it? It's commanded from God. Now, the word that I did include in your notes this morning that you'll see up on the screen in just a minute, one word is a Hebrew word. And it's this word oath, O-T is the way it's spelled in our language, but uh, to pronounce it, you'd be like O-T-H. That, that's not significant, but here's what it is. God says it's going to be a sign, meaning like a signal, like a beacon. It's like a flag so that people will know something significant about you. So the sign is not pointing to the physical action. It's something more significant than that. What it's pointing to is the heart of faith. See, it's a witness that this one believes and therefore that one belongs to God. That is precisely the case with baptism. That is precisely the case with communion. We just celebrated communion here last week. When we do that, we're carrying out something that God told us to do. Now we're seeing that it's also called a seal. Sign and a seal. Now what's a seal? Well, in antiquity, the seal is a mark of ownership, right? As when one man owns something and he put a seal on it to say, that's my property. We still do that today. You go into office environments, and maybe it's a big corporation or small corporation, but there's inventory tags placed on equipment, right? What we're saying by putting those tags on there is it's sealed. This belongs to the corporation. You better not walk off with it. Cattle owners do that. People who own livestock, they they brand their cattle, they put a seal on it saying, this is mine, hands off, it doesn't belong to you. See, what we're seeing here is this work system that these people in antiquity got caught up in, in their case it was circumcision, it had absolutely nothing to do with Abraham's acceptance by God. Look one more time at Galatians, look with me on the screen, Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. That's a huge statement for them to make because they've got a lot of people around them who are thinking, well, I can earn my way to God. Let's go to verse 12 because verse 12 completes it for us. It's the last verse we're going to do this morning. And the father of circumcision, meaning Abraham, to those who are not only of the circumcision, so if you're confused by that, he's talking about Jewish converts, 
people who are, who are Jewish by background, but they're coming to Jesus, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our Father, which he had while uncircumcised. So we'll stop there for today. Ask yourself this question. What kind of faith did Abraham have? Because we're told that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a child of faith. You're of the true circumcision, Scripture says. What kind of faith did Abraham have? Well, in God's own words, here's what we're told about Abraham. In the book of Hebrews, New Testament, we're told that Abraham was a person who looked forward to a time that he could not see, believing God and taking God at his word. Do you find yourself taking God at his word? Do you believe that when God said, as a result of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, your sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west. Do you believe God on that? If so, you're a believer. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead? Why? Because God said that's what happened. If you do, you're a believer. Like Abraham, who looked forward to a time that he could not see, but took God at his word, you are of the same line of thinking because you've never met Jesus Christ. Nobody here 2,000 years old, but you read God's word and you trust God's word and therefore you believe God's word. So that puts you in the same line of thinking of Abraham. Abraham believing, although he could not see, that God would be faithful to that which he committed because God cannot lie, can he, New Hope? God cannot lie and five of you believe it. I'll give you another chance. God cannot lie, can he? No, God cannot lie. He's faithful and he's true. Let me reach back one more time into Genesis 15, 6. I just really want you to get this down because you're dealing with people in your life who are confused about this. Reach back to that earlier quote with me. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, it was credited to him as righteousness. So we understand that Abraham was made right with God only because of his faith. Same God, same God yesterday, same God today, same God forever, and he never wavers. There's no shadow in his turning. There's, there's no change in him whatsoever. So when Jesus showed us that we're saved for eternity by believing not by doing. It's not something that's new. It's not some new revolutionary concept. It's ancient. It goes back as far as time goes back. That's why Jesus could say, Abraham knew I was coming, and he was looking forward to a time when he could see it, and he rejoiced. Look with me on the screen, John 8, 56. This is Jesus' own words. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How could he do that? He lived thousands of years before Jesus. How could he look forward to that? Because God said it would happen. And he took God at his word and he believed. And so as a result, if, can you put, Jody, put Genesis 15, 6 back up there? I told you I wouldn't do it to you guys again, but I want you to see it one more time. Okay, what happened as a result? We're told that as a result of his believing, God did something. God credited to him righteousness. What Paul has done here is he's used a banking term from the first century and he translated it over into God's word as he wrote this. 
this word logizomai, it means to transfer to another person's account, to take from one account, a banking account in this case, and transfer to another banking account. When it comes to spiritual issues, this truth is as ancient as the days of Genesis. What God did is he scheduled a transfer, a transfer from the righteousness of Jesus Christ over into my account which is filled with sin. The righteousness of Jesus who knew no sin, who could not sin, God made to be sin on my behalf, transferring my sin out and removing it as far as the east is from the west and remembering it no more. So as a result, your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Yeah, that's worth saying amen to. If you're new to church, when people do that, they're just saying, yeah, it's true. Amen. That is truth. So the true children of Abraham are not those who model rituals. They're those who receive God's gift in faith. Philippians 3.3. Look with me on the screen. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. The relevance of this basic truth, and I know it's really basic. Some of you are like, oh, I totally got this down. I've known this for years. But you know people who don't. You know people who don't have it down. And I know it's really, really basic, but the relevance for our generation is huge because you're surrounded by billions of people who trust in religious ceremony or they're trusting in the fact that maybe I'm a good enough girl or I'm a good enough boy or it's all just going to work out in the end. God says, no, that's not the case. See, that's exactly the authority that the Jews attach to circumcision. They thought, this is going to earn me a place with God. So let me just revisit those two words with you to close this from verse 11. The sign and the seal. This is the relevance for your life, how you see it carried out in the midst of your life with God. A sign, we said, points to something. And a seal guarantees it. So as a sign, something is pointing beyond itself to something much, much bigger. As a seal, it authenticates the righteousness in, in the case of Abraham, the, the righteousness that God said is on him. What's it doing? It's pointing to the fact that God's got a claim. God's got a claim on his people's hearts, on those who believe that he would cleanse their hearts. Let me show you how old this is. It goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, you'll see it on the screen, Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. There's a new thought. They were concerned about the physical body. Moses is saying, God's going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Why? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. So first and foremost, God's desire is to remove sin. If you will, to cut it away. The sin that covers our heart. Because without dealing with the heart issue, the ritual is nothing more than ritual. You can take communion until you're blue in the face, but if you don't have a relationship with God, it means nothing. You can get baptized, but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, the one who redeemed you, you just got wet for nothing. There's got to be the relationship. God's saying, you've got to believe that Jesus is the one that I sent to take away your sin. So today, because of the specific commands of God, believers in 2017... We're asked to take on some physical demonstration that we actually are aligned with Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. 
Baptism is the symbol of an individual believer's alignment, saying to the world, this is me, this is who I am, I belong to Jesus Christ and I'm not ashamed of it. Like Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the power of God unto salvation. Uh, if that's the case with baptism, what does communion do? Communion symbolizes the redemptive act, that he shed his blood and he broke his body for us. So we've got an individual exercise and we've got a community exercise. What did the ancient Jews have? An individual exercise and a community exercise called Passover. In the same way, God translated that over to the church. Understand this though, none of those elements have any capacity to save, but both of them witness to who we belong to. His sign is pointing to the true power of the redemption in Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. The baptism and the communion are just outward demonstrations of an inner reality in your life. You want to go one step further and talk about the seal? God tells us that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a seal, right? Sealing us for eternity, that we belong, that we're His. God says, hands off, that one is mine. He seals us with the power of the Holy Spirit. I was taught in Bible college that great messages have great conclusions, right? Whether or not you consider this a great message is up to you to decide. But I'm going to go for the great conclusion part, okay? So the, the great conclusion part of this is here, here is the truth of God's Word, what you've just seen. My conclusion is that we are justified through faith in God's capacity. What God clarifies for us very, very clearly is the one who comes to Him has to come by faith through Jesus Christ. Let me give you one verse to close out this entire conversation from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. In a nutshell, it puts everything that we just described. Colossians 2, 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's obviously talking to the church here, right? He says he made you alive. So you were dead and he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions. It's just a big church word for sin, right? That's what transgressions are. He's forgiven us all our sin, all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, right? East from the west, remembers it no more. He's taken it out of the way by doing what? Having nailed it to the cross. Praise Jesus. That's, that's good stuff, right? That's the truth of God's Word. I'm going to pray with you right now, and then we'll see if maybe you had any questions or observations about the things we just covered. Let, let's pray together first. God, I ask that you would seal this in our heart. For those of us who are tempted to think that we're not righteous enough, you declare us righteous because of what Jesus did. Even when we don't feel that way, or even when we've had a bad week, God, we recognize who we are to you. We are precious in your sight. Remind us of that. Don't let the enemy steal our joy, Father. Keep us close to you that we might walk in the power of this forgiveness we've been given and that we might be willing to tell others how they can have it too. God, we ask for this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Now, we do this typically in Saturday night. We do a Q&A thing, but don't feel like you've got to hang around for that. But if there's two or three observations or questions, I'd be happy to engage with you in them. Anything that's stuck out at you? Yeah, Rick. Well, right there towards the end, I thought I heard you 
Passover, right. In the sense that they're both a sign, right? They indicate that God said, I want you to do this. Jesus commanded that we would participate. So Rick's asking the question that I referred to to baptism and communion, comparing it to the Passover and, and the circumcision. God, in both cases, said, you're going to do this. And you're going to do this to remember, right? So we're given communion that we all participate in to remember what God did for us. In the same way, um, they had a public demonstration, which was Passover. They did it as a community of, of individuals who belonged to God. And then their private part was their circumcision when they were little kids. They didn't have a choice, right? The parents said, you will have this happen. So for us, we've just kind of translated that to being a public display in baptism, saying, here's who I am. I'm, I'm belonging to Jesus Christ, and I'm not afraid to tell people. We good on that? Okay. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. Yes, sir, Kevin. Yeah, I, what did they have to build their faith on? Because we've got the completed Word of God, right? It's like, how fortunate are we? What, what they had is the revealed Word of God given through the patriarchs. So you've got Noah, you've got Job, right? And, and you've got King David. All these guys, Elijah, Jeremiah, they're, they're writing down what we have in the Bible today, these revelations from God. And they built their faith based on this understanding that these individuals um, became the spokesperson or the voice. Once God relayed the information to them, they relayed it to the people. So they could build their hope or their faith on God's word. We just happen to have the benefit of having it written down in a complete Old Testament to New Testament for our benefit. They didn't have that. They had essentially scrolls, right? Yeah. Oh, Tyler, how are you doing? Welcome back from Christmas break. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Uh, what would you say for someone who you, uh, who does not reflect any of those signs, um, but, but they, they want to see them? Okay. Yeah, his question was, what would you say to someone who's, I'm assuming you're thinking about someone who thinks they're a Christian, right? Yeah. They don't have any of the... Okay. Um, that there, you don't see indication in their life that perhaps they're carrying out any of the sign. Like maybe they're not participating in church life. Is that what you're thinking? They didn't never got baptized and they're not participating in communion. Well, I'd say in, in that sense, that, that's a Christian who's not in fellowship, right? They, you can be a committed follower of Jesus Christ and not be in a church, but yet. God said, I want you to be part of a church, to be part of a community. So a person could be in disobedience and still be a believer. So if you're not seeing the indication like, hey, they don't ever take communion, they, don't ever, they never got baptized, I don't see any indication of the sign in their life, um, I'm not saying that that person's not a believer because being baptized doesn't make you a believer, right? Taking communion doesn't make you a believer. Believing in Jesus makes you a believer. But for a person who willingly just kind of checks out on church and says, I don't need that, I know all that stuff, I'm good with it, they've probably got to deal with a heart issue of where God says, don't forsake the assembly of the brethren. 
you need each other in community together. That person really probably has a heart issue, just a kind of a, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in control, I'm going to do what I want to do, right? That doesn't mean they're not a believer, though. Yes, Steve. There you go, yeah. Yeah, Steve's point was you can do the right things but not really have your heart surrendered or rendered to God. And, and people can show up and take communion and go through baptism and never have a relationship with Christ at all. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, David. Yeah. David, David's thought was that there's a lot of denominations that participate in infant baptism. Did you have a thought around that, or are you just kind of throwing it out there? See if you can make me squirm. <laughs> you, you just want a, a thought around that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it, when it comes to infant baptism, my view, I, I can support this from Scripture, and many well-meaning parents have had children baptized. My parents had me baptized as a child at seven years of age. They had me sprinkled, right? I didn't know what was going on, right? I, I, and I didn't have a relationship with Christ at the point. The, what they were doing was carrying out a function because the church says you should have your child baptized. Well, baptism is a personal decision on the part of that individual to say, I belong. Well, you can't decide for your baby whether or not that baby belongs, that's a personal decision that individual soul has to make. Do I belong and do I believe this or not? So my view on that, if you're trying to go to that, is that it, it needs to take place when a person understands why they're being baptized. Now, a seven-year-old can understand why they're being baptized. I just didn't. A, a five-year-old probably could understand, but I didn't in my case. However, many people are teenagers before they really get it, and some choose to not get baptized for 20, 30 years after they became saved. Um, but God's commandment is that we would be baptized as a display, saying, okay, I get it. That's why you see in the New Testament people getting baptized immediately. They understood the significance of it. What they were saying publicly is, you know, they're really putting themselves out there. Yeah. Yeah, I can take you to Scripture. I, um, we'll do it after the service, and I'll give you some verses on that. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Okay. Okay. So if you didn't hear um, Bill, he was suggesting that in John chapter 6, there were lots and lots and lots of people, thousands who were following Jesus. But because he said some really hard things that they were not prepared to hear, uh, they decided not to follow him anymore. They walked away, right? So your question on top of that was what? Oh, okay. 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 
Yeah, I could get us off into the weeds real quick on that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll teach on that at some point then if you'll remind me. Okay. Well, it's been great to hang out with you guys today. Hope you have an excellent week. God bless you.